Mm-hmm. We don't have to do the intros over again, though. We're just going to talk about freemium crowdsourcing and the new digital economy and how artists can either avoid getting chewed up in the jaws of it or maybe even have some triumphs. So, wait, you were going to post a question for me, Noel, about... I was. About freemium, so let's pick up there. Well, you know how I had discussed earlier and I've discussed with you that, to me, the current reigning champ of freemium is Google and how they've used that right. give stuff away, give stuff away, give stuff away without any you know, worry about compensate, getting compensated for it um, in order to build a brand, build a user base, and then tap them as potential advertising targets and whatnot in order right. to monetize it some other way. And uh, it was described as the gift economy. So I did a little research on that term, gift economy, and to my surprise, it actually goes back thousands of years. Right. So how does gift economy relate to freemium? Is it synonymous or? Mm. Well, it's a really good question. And I haven't actually studied the gift economy that carefully, but I, I view... I view the gift economy a little bit differently because I view the gift economy as a barter economy where the notion of turning that into a financial transaction is sort of off the table. It's kind of a separate issue. And I'm a fan of gift economies when they work. The problem is that our lives are too complex now so that if I want to gift you my thermos and you give me my juice, but I need a new pair of shoes, you know, the gift economy is too complicated to serve today's complex human societies. It works really well in smaller settings, I think, and I think it's still a value principle that you can see in use on the web. But the, where free derives its roots is, I recommend this book, Chris Anderson's Free, and uh, you can also listen to the Free, the Future of a Radical Price for those of you who might by chance be watching. And you can also download the audio version for free and what Chris talks about is that the notion of giving something away in order to eventually make a sale based on it, he traces it back to the late 1900s where Jell-O was having trouble getting off the ground. And so the, some guys behind Jell-O started marketing recipes and how-tos and how to use the stuff and started handing out pamphlets door to door. And that led to a bunch of sales and it became a cultural institution of sorts, I guess, if you want to count Jell-O. <laughs> but yeah. what, what, Chris, what Chris talks about with the digital economy is that it's changed how free works because in, in the real economy of, of, of Adam, like actual physical products like a book, the free economy can only work to it a certain extent because, for example, with this book, if I have to give a ton of copies away for free, the production costs of that are too expensive to build a business model around it, whereas he points to the things that have happened with digital with uh, innovations around bandwidth, around storage, around processing speed is converging into creating it possible to essentially distribute things at almost no cost. And so that's where the rise of these new free models have largely come out of is the, the fact that you can give so much away. Like Google adding another server isn't a huge expense when you look at the amount of pages they can serve from that physical thing. So that's why this whole this this free economy has really risen up around digital distribution and digital being free. And the the problem with the free economy, in my opinion, is that and this is where I have some issues with Chris Anderson, although I think he's brilliant, Chris argues that a new economy of free has sort of replaced the pre-existing economy, I would argue that it's been much more disruptive than that and that a lot of traditional economies have been displaced and new economies haven't necessarily come up so that a lot of people who are used to making money, for example, by selling their intellectual property are now faced with the daunting prospect that the intellectual property is considered free consumption. I.e. musicians. Right. <laughs> and even if you want to charge for it, someone else is giving it away or it's available for free. Or, it's somewhere or it can else. be stolen. Right. And well, so, so we're... say Craigslist undermining the entire news industry. Right, exactly. So, so I don't see it all as necessarily healthy, and I think that individuals run the risk of getting crushed by these changes if they don't understand what they are and how to capitalize on them. One interesting example of this is like Chris t- 
talks sometimes about the power of eyeballs and it, essentially that we have an attention economy. But the problem is, and this is something I was hoping to get into today a little bit, is that there's a huge difference between getting eyeballs and attention and turning that into, into money, things we can actually live on. And YouTube's a really interesting example because as many eyeballs as YouTube gets, it's not yet profitable. Because unlike Google's text businesses, Google hasn't figured out how to monetize YouTube through advertising. The advertising model on YouTube isn't working as well as it is for the text-based system they have. I think they're having trouble figuring out how to serve up ads that are relevant to people who are searching. Because with the tech stuff, it's like, well, I'm searching for stuff, and then you're showing me stuff that's directly relevant to what I'm searching for. When I'm watching Tool on YouTube, I'm not necessarily looking to buy a pair of pliers. Right. You know? So, so, so even Google, with all its eyeballs, you know, or, or a site like Twitter, which still doesn't have a business model despite all its eyeballs, it, free is not a no-brainer. Uh, and, and the problem with free is that the aggregators tend to win rather than the individuals. So the Amazons and the Apples and the, the Googles of the world tend to triumph with these models, but the individuals don't always triumph. However, having said that, the reason that we wanted to gather and talk about this stuff is not just to I, identify some of the problems, but also look at what are some of the opportunities, because the one thing I would say is that for artists, there's also something very exciting about cutting out the middle person and tapping into audiences directly and finding creative ways of funding projects. Because there are success stories out there of artists who have built a following, what, what, what insiders call a platform now, uh, essentially a stage of sorts online. And, and leverage that in various ways, whether it's through selling merchandise or a premium on live performances. So if you build it, sometimes you can convert that audience into paying customers. And so that is what I think we're all interested in, is how do you do that? And what I see is that where people are having success is when they're able to combine stuff they give away with stuff they can charge for and what you have to sometimes let go of is what the definition of that might be. So, for example, I might end up giving this book away. I tried to give it away on Kindle, but I might then charge for speaking engagements from the book. So if I can let go of the, the, my romance with making money on the sale of the book and put it in as many hands as possible, then maybe through that other things can happen. So the musician has their equivalent of that as well. Um, and, and so I think that's where the, the model gets interesting. Traditional businesses is, wait, I've got all these services I'm trying to sell. I'm a plumber. I'm an electrician. I'm a whatever. And like, wait, I can actually give some stuff away and then build my business that way. And I do think that, that can work. So That's where I see a direct link to crowdfunding because what you just described is the essence of crowdfunding. Right. For an example... Um, you know, artists will create a crowdfunding project, and let's say they're trying to raise $1,000 to go on a small tour. They will incentivize, if I can use that crazy word, their fans to donate money to the crowdfunding project by giving away things along with something they would normally sell. Great example is, you know, if you contribute $50, I will give you my CD and I will write you a special song. Or uh, if you contribute $100, I will give you my CD and I will drive to your house and cook you dinner. So they're, they're coming up with these wacky things to give away along with a product to substantially increase the amount of revenue they're gaining from that. Because you couldn't sell a CD by itself for 100 bucks, But you could get your fan base to pony up 100 bucks for the CD if it's part of a crowdfunding project where you're also bundling it with these cool you know, prizes or whatever you want to call them, rewards. So let's dig a little bit deeper into it. Share some examples and some ideas from what you're learning, and let's fit that into our conversation. Okay, well, a brand new example, which is really off the charts, that I want to talk about is uh, the, the website of, of my favorite crowdfunding website is rockethub.com um, because they are the most involved with their user base. They're awesome guys, and they really get into it. That's the big difference between them and the other sites, in my opinion. 
and they recently had someone come to them who wanted to raise money, and this is going to sound weird, for surgery. It was a cartoonist, and she recently became uh, ill, and something happened to her arm, and she couldn't draw anymore. And the doctor told her, you need surgery immediately, or you may never draw again. So they, uh, her friend went on Rocket Hub, created a Rocket Hub campaign, and thought, well, let's see if I can raise a little money to help her pay for this surgery that she needs right now. And he put the amount up as $15,000. Let's see if I can get $15,000. The day he did this, he created the Rocket Hub campaign. He went to dinner. When he came home, they had already far exceeded $15,000 in donations in that short a period of time. Within a short period of time after that, it was up to $98,000 from this cartoonist's fan base, which is unprecedented. I mean, that's an amazing amount of money in a very short period of time to raise using a crowdfunding technique. So that's one extreme example, you know, but some more, more realistic examples are, are um, listed in, in these articles that, I've, uh, that you can download. Um, a Hawaiian singer-songwriter named Cub World. Uh, he was one of the first three artists to release his CD on the Celaband.com website. He, with only 686 backers, he raised $50,000, which is pretty impressive. Uh, he did it again with a second project. 354 backers, he raised $15,000. And I like listing those two because it shows that it can be done more than once because there's fear that you could tap out your fan base. So let me ask you, in a situation like that, would there be any obligation on his part aside from just delivering the final product? Is he offering any other special conditions at that point or just saying, I want to record this today and you're, you know, do the people get a free copy or how does, like, what does he do to get them? Exactly. What works there? That's, that's very thematic amongst all of the websites that are set up right now, such as kickstarter.com, rockethub.com, celaband.com. Um, the way the artist does it is they create levels of, of sponsorship or contribution levels, and for each level there's a prize package, a rewards package. And it typically consists of the CD, once it's recorded, and something else. And as the money goes up, the reward goes up. And the examples of the things that they're giving away are really out there. Like one band decided they were going to take the, the person out to, to, for drinks. So if you contributed X number of dollars, they would take you with them on the town, bring you to their favorite bar, and they would get you drunk. That was the prize. Another band, um, the lead singer... Depends on the band in that case, I guess, for me. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> and and the, where they're taking you. Yeah. Another band called the Eureka Birds, the lead singer actually makes these handmade stuffed birds. And so that was the prize, one of the prizes. Um, some of the artists said that they would, uh, like one artist said, I'll take you Amish hunting. Don't ask me what that is. Uh, another artist said um, they would take, take the person sightseeing um, or buy you dinner or write you an original haiku or take you, uh, or give you voice lessons. Um, you can get a lifetime membership in a fan club. Um, they'll take you. They'll take you to dinner. They'll cook you dinner. One one artist said that they would DJ and sing karaoke style to some of their songs at your party and bring you a signed copy of the new record. And then they finished off with, "I will make your party awesome. I will wear something insane." <laughs> now I'm curious about about this because what I'm interested in is at what phase in the artist development do these kinds of techniques start to work. In other words, if, if I just went into my bedroom this weekend and came out with this idea of some new songs and had no name recognition yet, would something like this work or does it work a little better when you're a little further along and maybe have some YouTube videos out there that people have watched? and maybe you've performed at a few places and people start to know more about you. Because it seems to me, without having done the research, that I'd be more inclined to donate money to an artist if I already had a bit of a connection to them. Absolutely. So is that maybe how this would fit into this model, where you might use 
free tactics, free distribution tactics to initially build your reputation. Yep. And then when it came to, oh, I really want to fund a legitimate studio album, not something I did in my basement, yep. that that's, is that how this might fit in? Absolutely. You're right on the money. I, there's definitely no benefit to an artist who's just starting out and doesn't have a fan base to do a, a crowdfunding campaign because you have no one to get the money from. So you absolutely have to do the work first of creating a fan base. And going back to Google Plus and Google Plus Hangouts, a great example of that would be Daria Musk, who these guys are familiar with. Uh, she put together a Google Plus Hangout concert. She performed for seven and a half hours live on the internet. She was viewed by over 9,000 people. And overnight, she built a fan base. I actually think I was one of those people. So there's there's a great example of her using free, giving right. away a concert, huge concert for seven and a half hours free, to build this fan base of nine thousand fans that she didn't have the day before. Suddenly she has nine thousand people she could tap for a crowdfunding campaign, and she did it in twenty four hours. Right. So that's an extreme example, but it is a good example of the way that they could use free to build a crowd up that they can then do crowdfunding with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I mean, all the social networking stuff is geared for that. You know, you build up a number of people on your Facebook page or, you know, and it used to be MySpace. Uh, you could use Twitter, combine all these things together. There's a ton of other sites, too, you know, ReverbNation.com that has tools that you can use. Uh, you can plug their widgets into the, the various social networking sites. And those sites are also working with freemium models because a lot of times they have a level where you can join for free and use a lot of their services for free. And then they, they'll make money by charging for premium memberships. Right. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me because when I've been studying how the lifestyle of the musicians evolving, there's been this whole notion of the, the new patronage economy, which is the idea that, well, musicians are going to need funding from somewhere, right? And, and record labels are not investing in albums the way they once were, so... Um, so, for example, like, you know, the days when Pink Floyd type band could walk into a studio and say, I need two years budget so we can beat each other up and record the wall. People, studios don't want to invest in that kind of album anymore because people consume digital downloads one at a time and they're looking for singles and they want you, they want you out on tour. They don't want you in the studio. There's no money to be made in the studio anymore. So the question becomes, well, how do musicians fund that portion of their development? And the, the things I've heard about include... Um, corporate sponsorships, so corporations coming in and creating unusual sponsorship arrangements. I tend to find that stuff a little distasteful, but at the same time, if the brand is actually a good fit with what you believe in and your lifestyle and stuff, I think that's something. Then I hear a lot about patronage, which is sort of like uh, uh, is sort of like how the arts used to work, where a wealthy person, it's almost like the the king's court, you know, like a wealthy person, you know, take takes you under their wing and funds you. What I'm interested in with crowdfunding is it seems like a better example of that. So instead of having to kowtow to a wealthy individual and basically be like, oh, what would you like, sir, on my next record? It would be more of a collective sourcing of funds, which seems a lot more appealing to me than... Well, that's, that's the actual title of, the, of, of one of the articles, crowdfunding, the new patronage. Right. Because that's exact. I agree with you 100%. I actually likened crowdfunding to patronage. I think it is one and the same. It's just a little bit different in terms of how it functions in modern society as compared to you know the old days when there was royalty and courts and kings and and religious patrons and whatnot. So you know now it's you're spreading the uh, support out over a number of people. So the money's coming in smaller chunks from a larger group of people. Right. But there's it's still they're still your patrons and. There's the the Celeband website, celeband.com, actually started with a very uh, specific goal of, of patronage in mind. Their whole idea was we're going to be a new kind of record label where we sort of crowdsource everything and we bring people into the Celeband community to support your band. So we'll replace the record label money with money from these people. The problem with Celeband is it was a little too it was too soon. They were too far ahead of the curve, and they ran into financial problems. So they ended up going bankrupt and relaunching as a, a more um, 
specific crowdfunding site now. So they're they're just like Rocket Hub and Kickstarter and whatnot. Whereas in the past they were like more of a record label where you had to raise fifty thousand dollars without a doubt, or you weren't going to be able to do anything with them. Right. So so you build you build your you build your reputation to a certain degree. You build your visibility. You get some crowdsource funding to invest some time and resources into a some product, but then you're saying, "Well, how can I actually at least make a living as a musician, if not more?" Uh, are you basically forced to tour at that point to make money? Is that what it's come down to for musicians, or are there other ways, or is it really pretty much live performance is where the money is? I th- I have always said, and this is from the beginning of this whole quest of mine. I'm talking as far back as the 1980s when I first started talking about independent music. My, I've always said that musicians need to diversify their revenue streams. You can't hope to make a living at it if you're counting on all your money coming from one source because it's too volatile and that source could dry up overnight and you'll be out of business. So the, the key in my opinion is to make a little bit of money from a lot of different revenue sources. That way if one goes away you just lost a little bit of money, you didn't lose a huge chunk of your income. And you could replace it more quickly that way. So what would be the examples of some different revenue sources? The Grateful Dead is an awesome example of that. I just, I saw, it came up on a documentary or something that I was watching, but they pretty much gave away their concerts for like, not, but they didn't make really much money on their concerts, but then they made a ton of money on the t-shirts and the... Merchandise. You know, the merchandising that they, they did, you know, but they gave away a lot, a lot, a lot, free until they got there, you know, they, well, they certainly encourage the massive distribution of bootlegs way more, yeah, than, exactly. way, way more yeah. than most bands did. Now, it wasn't digital di- distribution. At that time, it was people Cassettes. passing around cassette tapes. Like they, but I guess they never had any hit albums. You know, they, they might have had some hit songs, but they never had any hit albums. Well, like, according exactly. to the mainstream, they didn't. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. So. Right. They, record selling was never a huge thing for them, although I think American Beauty has sold something like 20 million albums. But for the most part... That's not really how they made hay. It's a it's a pretty good example in the sense that I think. But they built the culture first. Yeah. They built the whole culture around the music. They were they were way ahead of their time if you think about it. People to build because they were doing that before the internet. People did it, but you know it became a whole culture. I'm glad you pointed that out. I I do think that in 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 business or in art right now, creating a culture around what you do is the ultimate way to ensure that you'll be able to support yourself financially. But creating a culture around what you do is is not easy either. I mean, you no, know, no, like like look at how Apple has had so much success doing it, and Microsoft with all its billions can't do it. You know, it's not easy to create culture. It's, it takes a really well, it takes some personality. Yeah, and, and some inspiration and things beyond yeah. your control. But so so let me ask you, Noel, about the you said diversifying your revenue streams as a musician. So take musicians as an example here. What what would be the different ways that musicians could derive revenue over time, in your view? Well, she brought up a couple of them, right? You know, with the Grateful Dead story. Obviously, merchandise is a great example. For some, let me say this before I answer the question: for every artist, it's going to be different, because for every artist, there's a personality at work there. There's a culture, as you said, at work there. There's their belief system, their philosophies, the reason they make art, the message they're trying to send with the art. So, for every artist. The diversification will be different based upon their lifestyle, their beliefs, um, and what they're comfortable with. So they have to find the things that work for them, and it could be anything from you know merchandising, trying to sell T-shirts and hats and whatever. If you're into that kind of thing, touring, um, house concerts. If they're you know smaller acts, acoustic singer-songwriters do really well with house concerts. Um, they could uh, do, in my opinion, crowdfunding is a huge potential revenue source. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're able to raise $50,000 realistically as an independent musician, that's a large chunk of money for an independent musician. And that's a real feasible amount of cash to support a career. If you could do that every X number of months realistically and successfully, that could be a, a large chunk of your revenue right there. And you know that would tie in all the various other things you're doing. It would, it would allow you to do more merchandising because you could use that merchandise as part of your, your reward tiers. Right. It'll allow you to do more manufacturing because you can use your CDs as part of your reward tiers. 
It's hard to sell physical product now because we're living in a digital age, but if it's part of a reward for a crowdfunding project, it's much easier to do it. Right. Now, when we look at the attempts to combat music piracy by legitimizing the purchase of music, like like I think iTunes is a pretty big success story as far as at least getting people to pay something. You know, they sell a lot of 99 cent songs on iTunes. For the musician, though, is is a small percentage of 99 cents. Is there anything there for the for for any for any musicians that are selling under like you know the five million type volume? Is there any realistic hope to make money off music sales digitally? Um, not a significant amount of money. I, I think that you know I think it's critically important that a musician try to do all of that stuff. I think they should be involved in digital sales. I think they should be involved in trying to get licensing and product placement stuff and do jingle work and do do anything and everything that they can and that they're comfortable with and capable of doing. Because you never know what's going to hit. Play bar mitzvahs. Sure. Yeah. You know, it, it, look at that stupid Friday song by that girl Rebecca Black or whatever. Her name. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she recorded this, what almost everybody will say is a really crappy song. But she put it up on iTunes, or at least her management company did, and it started selling 99 cents a pop, and she sold enough to make a million dollars. So you never know if it's going to hit. It could become that viral thing that just makes you know makes the cut and somehow catches on. And bingo, there's your there's your money. Other examples are the bands that get uh, commercial placement, like you know that Heineken commercial with that girl singing that song. You know, that's huge for her. That has made her a superstar. That one little clip in that Heineken commercial. And now everybody's like, that freaking song is amazing. Who's this artist? So that, that's what hit for her. So you, you gotta try you got to try all that stuff because one, one thing might be all it takes. Yeah, I think one of the hard lessons of free is that you have to give some pretty awesome stuff away and be comfortable with that trade-off in order to build the loyalty that then leads you down a better path. Uh, one example of that I was seeing lately is there's a, some clever musicians that are starting to release cover songs on YouTube because, for example, like if you're looking for a song, let's, I'm trying to remember which one I was looking for. I was searching for a song on YouTube. Maybe it was Fast Car by Tracy Chapman, but I can't remember. But anyway... So I searched for it, and a bunch of listings came up, including some musicians who had covered the song, right, from the comfort of their bedroom or their living room or their kitchen or whatever. But some of the covers were really good, and, and a couple of them had like two or three million views. And as I dug into some of the stories behind these people, what I realized is that they were relentlessly you know, putting out music, mostly covers, some originals, but a lot of covers because they were getting caught up in searches like that, and then people would favorite their channels and start watching, and then they would start selling stuff on iTunes and Amazon and what have you, and I think that's the one interesting thing about free is that you, you can sometimes sell stuff that is freely available just for convenience. For example, okay, I can listen to all your songs on YouTube, but that doesn't mean I wouldn't buy it on iTunes so I can have it on my iDevice in the exact format I want it in. And I think that's the thing. Once you have 4 million people watching, then 99-cent song sales start to add up a little bit more. And these people had toured, and I think one of them had signed some kind of record label contract. Um, but it can be counterintuitive to start first at thinking about giving something away or, as, as the insiders say, building a platform that, that eyeballs become more important to the to the artist in the beginning than anything else and that that then leads the way to the tactics I think that you're discussing and I think that's how the things seem to fit together now that we're talking about it that was the whole that was the whole argument back in the Napster days when you know Napster was arguing that they were the best thing that ever happened to the music industry despite the fact that everybody else was saying oh my god they're destroying the music industry because people are ripping off music now but their, their whole argument was, well, we're giving these artists exposure that they can then leverage to create. The problem I had with it was that Napster was doing this without anyone's permission. Exactly. So now, with these new systems in place, especially crowdfunding, 
you know, this is all permission-based stuff. So the artists are in charge, and that's much preferable in my opinion. If the artists can maintain control, they can maintain ownership, and they can choose what they want to give away, then they can also more effectively monetize it or leverage it later to monetize it. I think that's what it comes down to, and I think that's the, the thing that people have to get over with the free economy is is that you, you don't have a choice in a way. Like, like, yes, you can choose some of your tactics, but Chris Anderson in, in a talk he gave called referred to them as the animal forces of digitalization and that free is inevitable. And there's something to that because the problem is that with the Napster thing, it's like, well, you can opt you know, not to have your songs maybe on a site like that, but another site is going to crop up that has your stuff you know, um, without your permission, and that's just going to happen. And so, but he has another very interesting quote, which he says, um, the real evil isn't piracy, it's obscurity. <laughs> yeah, well, that was an after phrase, too. And that's a real interesting quote. Now, I would say, to a point, I think piracy is pretty evil, in my opinion. Um, because and, and piracy can, piracy and obscurity can exist, can can coexist simultaneously. So that I'm, I don't right. necessarily agree with that statement right. because you can still be an obscure artist and be getting pirated oh, like crazy. You know, right. I, here's a great example. I just discovered on, and I keep bringing Google Plus up because we're streaming through their server. So I just rediscovered a band that I worked with way back in the day from Boston called Two Ton Shoe. And I was shocked to, to see somebody on Google Plus mention their name. So I, I, I got a hold of the guy and I said, how do you know Tutan Shu? Right. He goes, well, I don't really know him. I just love their music. It turns out he's from Korea. They're big in Korea now because they were getting pirated there. Right. So, <laughs> you know, it, yeah. there's a silver lining to the story because they were able to turn it into a deal. Now they right. go over there and sell music. But it started with theft. <laughs> so no, they were they were obscure and getting pirated. <laughs> no, it's it's absolutely true, and, and and part of the problem with free is that the ramifications of one thing to another aren't always clear, and that's why I think well, I, well, I disagree with Chris in the sense that I think he tends to view free, I think ultimately as a positive for society in most ways. I I don't. I think it's more complicated than that. But one example that he he talked about was Craigslist, which is very interesting because. The guy who started Craigslist is a fairly idealistic person, and he's done a lot of things to try to do some good with what he had done, but I don't think when he started he thought he was about to decimate the newspaper industry, which is what ended up happening because, you know, newspapers supported themselves on classified, classified ads, and, yeah. and tons of great newspapers and fantastic journalists lost their jobs as a result of this, and, and that wasn't something that he intended, but he invoked things into motion that were not possible, he couldn't take that back. And I yeah. think that's, that's sort of the problem. And, and, and for, for artists and creative people of all stripes, I think the big lesson for me is that the, the good news is that you can tap directly into audiences and you can build your own platform. The bad news is that you have to learn how to market in this new way. You can't not take that on. Yeah. You can't just be like, oh, I just want to be an artist. I just want to do my creative work and not deal with this other shit. Well, you, know, to, that's, well, you have to incorporate that. No, go ahead. Yeah, yeah I hope we have your question and answer period at the end. Because yeah, yeah. you said in the beginning raised something in my mind that I wanted to bring up, but I'm not we'll sure. Bring it up right now. Let's do it right now. Yeah, let's do it now. Let's do it now. You were talking earlier about how, you know, Google hasn't figured out how to monetize YouTube yet, but they have figured out how to monetize the text-based stuff by putting Google ads up there. Right. And I've been going to these classes up in Montague called the Society for Useful Information. Oh, yeah. I heard about those people. I met one of those guys. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's one guy. It's a nice actually. idea. Yeah. What he's fascinating. He was talking about how, because that's what he does for business. He does, he figures out how to do data mining searches for his company. He gets paid to do that for a financial company, I think. And one of the things he was, so, but he's been just sort of teaching people all of his search techniques and how to configure Boolean phrases to, to weed out search results. But one of the things he said that's starting to happen in Google that's really, it's invisible and it's kind of scary is that two different people can search for the same exact word at the same exact time. They might not even be logged into Google in any way. 
and they will get entirely different search results because Google knows how to identify their computer and will skew the results based yep. on their political bias. Right. And it was sort of like, why? And then when you said that thing, I began to realize, oh yeah, because depending on what text comes up in the search, that's going to call up different Google ads and they will be more likely to click on it if it fits their mindset and their mm -hmm. worldview. But what that means is that people are getting politically filtered results that reinforce their worldview, so they're not necessarily getting like an unbiased search result. That's an excellent, that's, that's very, yeah, that's good, good input. You know, so, so I'm wondering. And, and that's so insidious. That's, I don't think people are going to realize that's happening. That's completely insidious. And yeah. then today when I was at work, I was, t I was plugging into a client's website some links for some news quotes for, she's a musician, and um, but she sent but she sent me the stuff in in Microsoft Word, and I have a Mac. I happen to open it and text at it, which sort of disassembles the links the way that Microsoft Word writes them. And I began to realize that every single link that she sent was rewritten as a Microsoft link mm -hmm. that then redirects instantly yep. to the actual. Link. They all do that. So that's got to be like. If you're in, if you're in Facebook, Microsoft like a massive rankings for the site right. that, that it gets. Yeah, set. if you're in Facebook and you click a link, it goes yeah. through Facebook's link yeah. exchange first. They redirect you. Yeah. If you do that in Google, they redirect you. So it's sort of like it's the same kind of market hurting that used to happen on television, except that it's completely invisible and unless you're an expert in this stuff you wouldn't know what's actually happening you think you were getting unbiased results mm -hmm. you might yeah and um, so that's maybe part of the three another part of the free economy that people can't see that is a little you know so then how do you how do you create markets how do you build markets when you've got this skewing going on you don't even know what's happening so well you're making you're, you're making a point that gets back to something I said at the beginning as well, which is that I believe these forces are, are disruptive and I don't think that how you capitalize on them financially is at all clear. Mm -hmm. I mean, Google has tried a number of things to expand its revenue model beyond advertising and advertising still accounts for something like 97% of all its income. And if you're running Google, that makes you a little bit nervous at heart and you're trying to figure out what else to do. And mm -hmm. one of the things... Facebook's in the same boat, and a lot of times the first thing that gets sacrificed at the altar is privacy, and mm -hmm. because because there's a tension between privacy and personalization, and the idea here is the more personalized we can make your experience, the more likely it is we can get you to buy a relevant product, <laughs> indulge yeah. in, and, 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 and as you point out, it has a relevance beyond business, which is... As a citizen of the world, okay, we're going to show you the results that will resonate with you, whereas you can make the argument that you want to expose people to unfiltered information, not stuff that's already been selected for them. Um, so, so, yeah, I think those are the reasons why I love to talk about this topic because it always surfaces something that, that we're not aware is happening and actually is part of the forces we're caught up in. Yeah, so. part of what the, the Society for Useful Information is about is teaching people how to build Boolean searches and ways of getting results that, that bypass the filters. Yeah. Um, so, um, and he said actually there's even ways to get into it, you know, information on sites that are supposedly registered where if you build a Boolean search for it, you can get in behind that stuff and, and get, up, get into certain pages yep. through Google. But, um, so bringing this back to your business a little bit, mm -hmm. what, is the, what is the relevance of these topics to your work? Well, um, trying to figure out how to have a broader reach for what I do. Um, and it's, it's, well, I do web and graphic design. So one of, it, there's, like, there's been a, there's been a theme too. here about, like, you know, the, the, the light side and the dark side of all of this throughout. And one of the things, I was talking to a, a logo, a, a graphic a fellow graphic designer, and he was talking about this site, I forget the name of it, but you can you can get somebody to design you, design you a logo for five bucks. You basically put up the price of whatever you want to pay for a logo, and people can compete to design it. And you only pay the person whose logo you've selected. So 
it's sort of like stabbing in a way on a massive scale. Mm-hmm. You know, so to me, that's totally the dark side of, right. you know, the fact that the internet is kind of a free for all. The, the light side is that there's this amazing capacity to build communities across continents. Mm-hmm. And, but there's a whole ethics piece, I think, where one of the things that the internet requires of people or calls to their attention is, is being a self-governing entity. You know, you either have ethics or you don't. I mean, you're going to form circles on the internet based on, you know, what types of ethics you have. Mm-hmm. Um, question is, since you know something like Google, which started out really cool, and in my mind, it's getting a little bit more and more ominous all the time. They're taking over the world. Um, they just bought Motorola. Did you know that? No, I didn't. They, not bought, Motorola. they bought Motorola. Mobility division, anyway. So now they're going to start manufacturing handsets for their Android handsets. Yep. At least that's the common take, though some people think they're going to just use it for patents to sue people because that's yeah. becoming the latest way to make money. <laughs> <laughs> Sprint out of business, I might not mind. <laughs> it could happen. You it know. could happen. Sprint could be on the chopping block. Yeah. but I think you made a really good point about sort of the dark and the light because that's kind of my experience living in this world day to day for myself is I'm constantly vacillating between the sort of discouragement factors and the good mm-hmm. factors yeah. Um, and I don't have a final verdict. I think it's. I think, in fact, the rush to have a verdict on it is is wrong. I think yeah. we're living through a really complicated thing. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, that's true. And yeah. and for creative people, and this is a really different topic, but I think an interesting one is because it's so easy to create content now. Yeah. I think people have a less attention span for consuming content. There's so much out there, you know. Yes. And and it's and interesting because. If everyone is sort of a creator, then how do you make sure that the really gifted artists in each generation get an audience, as opposed to like, if I'm uploading Facebook photos, I'm not listening to other people's music. If I'm recording my own music and uploading it, I'm not listening to yours. And if I'm getting pinged on my iPhone by 50 text messages all day long, I'm not listening to anything. (laughs) So I think it's a really interesting thing, is how does the, the speed of information in our culture change how we consume stuff. Well, well here's, here's an interesting sidebar to that, which is that I've been noticing, you know, and I have offices down in Eastworks now, so I'm like half the time I'm working up in OneNote where I only have a dial-up connection. I'm less likely to be online there. And, um, you know, or I'll be down in my office in Eastworks where I have a high-speed connection. But I notice that my tendency is, you know, to check my email first thing in the morning before I start work. And what I'm noticing is, is that it takes me maybe about 10 minutes to check my four different emails where I have things filtered, like family goes one place, you know. Wow, I'm jealous, 10 minutes, oh my God. You yeah, know, it takes me but 10 by hours. The time, yeah. But by the time I've gotten through it, my brain's been so grabbed in so many different directions by so many deep, different people's goals and concerns that I'm kind of fried for making a fresh start in the day mm-hmm. and keeping my own focus. And I'm remembering before the internet was around, that was not happening. I would just start fresh in the day. Right. I might hear the news if I was listening to like NPR that morning. And then I'd just get on with the day. And then eventually news would get to me by, I'd see the, a paper somewhere along the way. Or, you know, but in a way, and especially for creative people, you know, there's a certain, I know you're saying, well, try as many different things as you can. But at a certain point when you're doing 20 different things, your focus is so fragmented that you can't do anything of significance and power in your well, that's, work. That's another big topic and at so the there's IMC. This whole, there's this whole piece on realizing that I need to figure out how to protect my uh, peace of how mind. To focus. Sometimes what I'm doing is checking, you know, starting the work I want to get done that day before I look at anybody else's yep. thing they want me to look at. Totally. Um, and then, you know, so there's this whole piece I have, I'm almost, I'm still, I'm sort of coming to things like this and gathering the information so that when I'm ready for it, I can use it, but in the meantime, I'm still at the point where I need time to build my story, flesh out my website, you know, and it's tricky because I'm trying to figure out how to, um, you know, finding a place for graphic design in the current climate is also, it's just as difficult as like the excellent journalists are losing their jobs, 
the excellent sound engineers are losing their job. It's like all of the arts right. in our culture are sort of dissolving, you know, as a result of the internet. You bring up journalism. Concern. As far as the journalism issue goes, yeah. because I'm a journalist, you know, as as a publisher. But the print world is imploding, and that's sure. Well, the, the whole the, the whole yeah. journalism world. You know, whether you're talking yeah. about whether you're talking about graphics or about someone who's an artist as a writer. The the stuff on, the biggest problem with the internet isn't necessarily that there's the ability for so many more creative people to create. It's the ability for so many people to regurgitate what already exists. Mm-hmm. And you, you find these websites that take articles off of another site and just represent them as right. excerpts. And they act like that's their content. And in many cases, they're destroying the meaning of the piece because they're excerpting little chunks. Right. And they're yeah. presenting it to the public as if that's the entire piece. Sure. And in a lot of the big problem, one of my pet peeves is that you'll go to these things and there's no attribution other than a, like a hot-linked word. Mm-hmm. So it's not obvious that you're reading part of an article that exists somewhere else. Right. And that's how they fill up their websites is with that content. So they're stealing content mm-hmm. essentially and creating a website which is basically crap. Right. Well, and here's, a, here's an interesting idea, too, because if you're talking about crowdfunding, right, you know, the, I mean, at least in the print industry or, you know, high-end graphics, um, which is, you know, it's like I'd, I'd like to be doing graphics that are, have some power and some weight and really say something and have presence and are quality level of workmanship. But what's tricky is that who used to be able to pay for that is large corporations. So that means that you'd end up with these, like, you know, incredibly expensive full-page magazine ads on Vogue. And right. uh, here's some of the stories of, like, people who were photographers for things like that. And, um, or graphic designers. I have some, still have some connections in New York. I mean, I have a friend who was a print broker who was making six figures, and then suddenly in a year, it's just like his business just disappeared. And the largest print company in the world was competing against him for $1,000 projects. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but okay, so if crowdfunding were to replace that, but how are you, you know, if that same chunk of money is coming from a diverse, you know, assortment of people, what product are you going to create? It's going to go to all those people that used to go to one big client. Right. And keep your focus as an artist. Or, right. you know, in other words, that's a really brain twisting, perplexing thing for me. It's like, what product should I be creating? Right. You know, when the old buyers of the product you created have gone away. Um, they're just not wanting it anymore. You know, what's taking its place in terms yeah. of who to create product for? Well, you know, the, the history of a lot of products and markets are that they simply go away and they don't come back. Mm-hmm. So right. it's entirely possible that as graphic designers, we're, we're screwed. It may yeah. be that our time has come and gone and that we just don't, you know, there's no clients anymore. Um, and it's not, it's not just because there's so many more ways to do graphics it's that like you just pointed out there's so few there's so many less who's going to pay for yeah the clients who, you know where are the where are the clients for that i mean it's i don't know music is one paradigm where you're talking about you're making a song that you write and you're selling instances of it you know i mean it's I also do art photography, so that's one potential idea is to, you know, do my photography, my art photography and sell instances of it, which is, I've been checking out Etsy as an option, but I haven't had yeah. much time to get around to building much around it. I'm starting to figure out how that part works. But in terms of graphic design, you know, yeah. I mean, I could sort of create generic logos and let people grab them. Um, pay five cents for using an instance of it, but nobody wants a logo that looks like someone else's. Right. You know, whereas that thing with the, the logo competition, I mean, there's people in Africa for whom if they can design a logo yeah. for five bucks, that's a huge sum of money in the economy they're in. There's a book by Daniel Pink. I think it's called A Whole New Mind. Mm-hmm. He also wrote Free Agent Nation. But I, I definitely recommend on my kind of short list on this topic... That's a big one, and one of the things that comes out of it is this notion that that to remain economically relevant in a global economy, which is the other piece of this we haven't talked about, is how technology globalizes labor. Mm-hmm. Um, to remain relevant involves emphasizing skills that go beyond what can be outsourced. Um, he emphasizes more creative skills, but in my case, responding to you, I would think it would have to do with full service skills, like 
there's got to be clients out there that, that want more than just design, that want... Brand and identity building. Exactly. Yeah. That everything yeah. you can do that is something that's not easily sent somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And what you run into in, in all kinds of fields right now is that if, if I do something that can easily be sent halfway across the world on a contract basis, then I'm screwed. Mm, you know, yeah, yeah, if, yeah. If, I can, if I can do something that is not easy for someone to contract out, then I'm in better shape. What's you the know? title of the book again? A Whole New Mind, I believe it's called. But the author is mm. Daniel Pink. Um, it's worth checking out. Yeah. Um, you might actually be on the cutting edge of the, the book, though, because he argues that creative skills are the ones that have to be fostered. And what you're encountering is that even some creative skills are outsourceable. Mm -hmm. um, so you're going even beyond his premise, but I would I would go even further than that and say that creative skills were the f first ones to take the hit. You know, as as a graphic yeah. designer, every time the economy is hurting, I feel it first, and especially since the computer revolution, because as soon as the desktop pu you know publishing system came along, lots of graphic designers were put out of business. Right. I had a flourishing business back in the '80s that vanished almost overnight because. I was no longer needed to do simple typesetting jobs for printers. They could do it themselves quick and easy on their little computer system. So there, there went all that bread and butter work that I used to have. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was, um, and, and that's a similar story to what we were just talking about, the way Craigslist destroyed the classified industry, you know. Right. So as these technologies emerge and, these, uh, and, and the globalization of these um, tasks, becomes yeah. more ubiquitous, then lots of people are out of, out of work. Yep. Well, here's another one. There's an article that my mom actually told me about, and I found it on the internet, called um, The End of the Office and the, and the Future of Work. And one of the things they talk about is crowdsourcing certain tasks. Like there is a, uh, the largest employer now in Kenya is a company in, it's somewhere in the United States, I think it's LA, and they basically send these little translation track tasks mm -hmm. through people's cell phones and they get like paid like three or five cents for a translating a little section of text and they might send that task to a hundred people, you know, um, like translating a dialect and people can do a little task while they're waiting for the bus on their cell phone. They get paid through their cell phone as well and they are now the largest employer in Kenya. But wow. if somebody's diligent at it, they can make a dollar or two a day, which is a, a huge sum of money in Kenya. Yeah. You were saying a little while ago, just wanted to circle back on it, that mm -hmm. that uh, that your issue with like task management and being kind of overwhelmed by the different irons in the fire that you have to keep going, yeah. that, that was a big topic amongst your musicians as well. What, well, that's that, what's uh, going on there. My favorite word there is focus. And that's, as I mentioned briefly, that's the other... If you can't have focus, you can't have presence. And if you're an artist, presence is your bread. You know, that is like the key. I think it's deeper than that. I think yeah. it's much deeper than that. Because we're talking about creative people who want to market their creativity, not just be creative. If you want to just be a, a garage band or you want to just you know, paint by numbers in your room and, and you're not trying to sell that stuff, it's totally different. You need to do both. But if you want to market what you're doing creatively, then you focus goes beyond just the creative process. It, it works its way into everything you do, including the business side of it. And I'll give you a concrete example. On Facebook, I have um, 2,700 friends or whatever in my Facebook profile. And people that use Facebook regularly are sometimes astounded by that because they say to me, how can you possibly stay in touch with all of those people? And the answer is simple. The word is focus. I don't accept any applications. I don't play any games. I don't allow any of that crap stuff to show up on my, on my Facebook page. I block everything except the stuff that is relevant and pertinent to what I'm doing. I stay in touch with those people. I try to keep updated on what they're doing. I try to maintain contact with them as best I can, and that's the core focus. Hmm. I use it for, as a tool to communicate with those 2,700 people. I don't use it to play Bejeweled Blitz and to you know, pass around the latest uh, stupid little text thing that they post all over. You know, I ignore all of that stuff. So sometimes the key to being um, focused is to do less. 
And that's hard for a lot of artists because their mindset is to do more, do more, do more. Right. And, and there's a, the famous phrase DIY, which is do it yourself, actually becomes confusing for them because they translate that to mean do everything all by myself, which is wrong. It's do it yourself, meaning you are in control, but you still have to have a team of people helping you. You can't do everything all by yourself. So you need to focus in on what you're good at, narrow down what you're mm-hmm. capable of, and do what works. And uh, so it's a huge thing at the IMC. We, hit, we cover in workshops, mm-hmm. we cover in mentor sessions, and we talk about it on the panels. I'll take it one step further, though, which is that I think, I think this is sort of a strong statement, but I think that by and large, aside from the people who already have a lot of money to blow, that the people who are most successful in the next 10, 20 years are going to be those that have figured out how to protect uninterrupted time. And the reason for that is, yeah. is as follows. Um, creating things of value that stand out in this noisy world is becoming more and more difficult. And there's almost no way to do that if you can't find some time blocks to focus. When I differentiate myself in my business with my clients by writing an amazing white paper or um, even if I'm writing something on my own, like working on a novel that I'm doing, that time is very, very difficult to secure when I'm taking phone calls and emails and responding to Facebook messages and stuff like that. So to me, the ability to protect that time is really important. And because once my day really gets going and once I start getting emails and phone calls and all that stuff, like the ability to really kind of hunker down and do that stuff goes out the window. And so I've had to spend a lot of time figuring that out because it's not as simple for me as, okay, I'm just going to take two hours at the beginning of the day for me. Because yeah. in some days, I got a client that's got an urgent issue, you know, or, or, you know, I might have a, there might be a news story that I really need to know about right away. So what I had to kind of do is to figure out how can I create kind of like ability to check on just what I need without getting distracted by all the things that can wait. And so yeah. that's kind of like how I've worked to achieve that. So it's not a perfect system or anything, but generally speaking, I've mm-hmm. figured that like, I figure the mornings are kind of mine and the afternoons are everybody else's. So, you know what I mean? Cause it's uh-huh. like, yeah. like, like, like for example, in my email inbox, let's say there's some important stuff that has to get dealt with that day. Well, if, as long as I deal with it by the end of the day, right? So mm-hmm. the fact that I didn't check until 2 or 3 or whatever yeah. doesn't really matter, you know? Right, um, yeah. So, so for me, I figured out a system where, like, mm-hmm. that morning time is a lot of my best time. So that's mm-hmm. a time where I tend to not have my email on. But I tell my clients, like, here's some other ways to reach me. So... For some yeah. of them, for some of them, it's Skype. For some of them, it's Twitter, direct message. Yeah. I give them a couple different choices that I can kind of manage better, mm-hmm. and that's kind of how I do it. But I think to me that that is a lot of what we have to figure out how to do is to protect our uninterrupted time, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. once you get going into the craziness of responding to that stuff, I think you're gone. Yeah. Like you're mentally shot. You're out the door. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to, to think of it like, chance, yeah. I, I tend to look at my days kind of like, I the time when I finally have to open my email is usually, I can't put it off usually after till about two. And I, at that point, my day is probably going to be shot because of the stuff in my inbox that is piled up that like has to be dealt with or, mm-hmm. you know, and as much as I've done to try to minimize that is there. So for yeah. me, like for me, so I realized at one point I can't become a prisoner to that. Like I have to create a lifestyle where okay, I have to deal with that, but I don't have to check it at 7 in the morning either. You know, yeah. I don't have to make myself available. I, cra- I get cracked up sometimes because I still get emails sometimes from people. I used to be a recruiter, so a lot of people still think of me as someone they get advice for from careers. And I'll get these email signatures of like 24-7, like these people that make a big show about like, interrupt me at any time. Here's my cell phone. Here's my <laughs> thing. And I'm like, you know what? You've got to protect your time a little bit. Like, do you really want to be called at any time of the day or night for whatever BS I'm going to spew on you or whatever other (laughs) people? Like, is that really a point of pride for you that you never protect? That you don't have a life? (laughs) Yeah, that that you don't protect. And to me, to me, to me, to me, 
I, I just see a real distinction between people who just allow themselves to get overwhelmed by all that and people mm -hmm. who set up rules around, I don't check email in the mornings, I don't bring my phone with me on weekends, whatever it is that they need to do to get the product out the door that differentiates themselves mm -hmm. because I don't, I don't differentiate myself by answering email. Like, I can't be a professional tweeter, you know? <laughs> no one pays me to tweet, at least not yet, yeah. you know? So I love to tweet with my friends and stuff and share information, but that's not how I pay the bills. And so, you know, I have to figure out how I can use the tools instead of the tools using me. And I think that's a really big issue that people are struggling with right now. Oh, yeah, that's you the know? whole, yeah. It's like, how do you, yeah, how do you use the tools on your terms instead of making them, you know, instead of them doing it on your terms. And that, you know, I wanted to go back to this whole idea of, you know, it's like targeting what you produce. And that's a little tricky. It depends on, like, if you're a musician, you might have a vision for music that you want to do. And you go out and you create, unless you're writing jingles, in which case, you know, you have something that's your target and you go and you create it. But if you're, you know, so for example, if I'm a fine artist, if I'm doing art photography, it's easy enough to figure out, well, this is what I feel like making my work around. That's not going to change in a month or two, or it doesn't matter if it does. But for graphic designers, some one of those industries where you might develop a game plan for, this is where I think the work is, and then where I can find people who right. purchase the product, and by the time you develop the product on the internet, six months is a long time. It's how much time it takes to develop your game plan and build a story and do all of that. And the whole game may have shifted to someplace else by the time you get all that stuff in place. I was just talking about that the um, other day with Barb, how, how fast the product cycle think, has become. And I yeah. think what that's doing to the it's culture true. at large is that people are like anxiety-ridden. You know? Future shock. Yeah. I mean, people are there's like more car accidents now. It's called future shock. Yeah. Yep. The other really interesting point and the big mistake I see people making, and yeah. I don't, I think this is a little tougher with musicians than, than with writers, mm -hmm. um, but it's the issue around people model themselves too much off of the internet celebrities that have really made it big. So, yeah. so for example, in marketing, it's people like Seth Godin and yeah. Chris Brogan and stuff, uh -huh. and you're like, I want to be the next guru or whatever. And the problem is that there's only room for so many gurus with mass appeal to everyone. Not and, necessarily and, agree with everything Seth Godin says. Right. Well, that's a whole other issue. Yeah. I'm not saying these. Yeah, I'm not saying these people are geniuses. That's a whole other story. But yeah. but um, but where people overlook the opportunities is sometimes a more narrow specialization where you can be the best mm -hmm. in that field globally and tap into audiences globally around that issue yeah, and I think people right. miss out on that sometimes and like I find it really interesting in my work because I know a lot about social media stuff and a lot about marketing but it's largely in the context of the SAP industry per mm -hmm. se and that so, is what exactly SAP so SAP is the leading corporate business software program so it's kind of like the integrated uh, program for corporate corporations that sort of Integrates everything from financials to human resources to supply chain management to, you know, so it's it's a is whole. It on the or is it well, it's a whole class of software called ERP or enterprise software. It's and a it's, corporate it's brain. Way too com these software programs are way too cumbersome and complex to be cloud based. Though there are some cloud based things that are emerging, but cl the cloud isn't mm -hmm. heavy duty enough and performance capable enough to handle these systems yet. Um, as like in terms of their broad scope. So do you um, assemble them or do you write them? Well, I'm an analyst in that space. So I'm a journalist and I'm an analyst and I'm a podcaster. I'm an IT. I'm an IT journalist, but I have a yeah. more narrow focus. And mm -hmm. what I think is a little bit interesting about that for me is that I occasionally pick up client work outside of that marketplace, and I have to cut my rates by a half or two thirds. Because without that 15 years of experience I have in that field, mm -hmm. if it's not if, if someone's not involved in SAP, all that SAP doesn't really have any relevance to them. Right. And yeah. so I think that's the big mistake people make is they try to figure out how to be try to be one more super famous internet guru, and they don't start with a more focused thing. And I see it all the time in the design and web business because I meet at our hidden tech events, all kinds of designers and programmers and stuff, 
and as a whole, they do a horrible job of saying the one or two things they're really good at. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it is because they don't want to turn down any kind of work, right? So they mm -hmm. want to cast a really wide net. So they'll be like, I'm a web designer. But it's like, well, mm -hmm. if I met someone who's a web designer and I go home and I maybe have their card, but maybe I put it on my desk with 20 other cards, if I run into work that might, like a month later, what will I, will I remember them? But if mm -hmm. they said, I'm the best Joomla designer in the valley, mm -hmm. bingo. Yeah. You know, then I, I hit a client that needs some Joomla help a couple of weeks later, mm -hmm. and I know exactly who I'm calling. And I think that's a big issue that people run into around this is at some point you have to develop, as he was saying, the focus. But I think that really helps you with branding to yeah. be able to say, this is what I'm really good at. Mm -hmm. And you might take on other kinds of work sometimes, but as a brand, mm -hmm. that's the brand you're pushing, right? So. Yeah, right. So I should, you know, I mean, I always put web designer in there because it's a lot of what I'm doing, but I really want to be doing logo design and, right. you know, beautiful text layout. I mean, that's what I would love to be doing most of. Yeah. So that's, I think that's an example of sharpening yeah. that, I think, can pay mm -hmm. off a lot in, in blaze in people's point. mind exactly what it is that that you're best at, and you might still keep the other stuff going, but it might not be focal point. Mm 